We are not alone. Amen? And God is with us, giving us strength, no doubt motivating the faith and love that's needed to live in the world that we inhabit today. Thank you so much, team, for reminding us of those truths this morning. Let's say our monthly memory verse together. It's from the book of Habakkuk, which we're studying. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4. I want to offer a word of public thanks to our fellowship team. Wonderful job last week with the church picnic. You also ordered up fabulous weather. Good job. It's good that we didn't have this weather last Sunday. Um, It all worked out very well. The food was good. The fellowship was wonderful. And I thank you for your time and your efforts. I know uh, we were all very much encouraged by your service to our family here at CNBC. Also, uh, I don't know if you noticed when you came in today. I don't know how you couldn't have noticed. Um, but I want to thank our Vacation Bible School decorating team. My goodness, they did a fabulous job. It looks beautiful in here. Yeah, I give them a round of applause. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, I did ask Wayne when he came in this morning if he thought that we could put a motor in that little buggy out front. Thought maybe it'd be fun to give rides and maybe he'll work on that this week for us. I don't know, but uh, they really went above and beyond and did an excellent job. So uh, good job to the VBS team. And we're looking forward to Vacation Bible School. It's coming up in just a few uh, weeks, actually just next week. So you want to be ready next Sunday. We kick it off uh, and we're ready to go from there. So we've been studying through the book of Habakkuk, and we only have a few messages left in this series as we work through it together, uh, studying it in light of hope for our present distress. And certainly we can look around the world today and we can understand and realize that we are living in some distressing days and difficult days, but we live in those days as those who have great Hope And indeed, the prophet's message is uh, sometimes perplexing. If you felt some tension as we've been in this series together, I think and believe that you would understand and realize that tension is the same tension that the prophet himself uh, was facing as he was going before God and pouring out his heart and asking very difficult questions about the world that he found himself living in. And so today we move into uh, the conclusion of chapter 2. We're in verses 6 through 20 today. And we're really going to be exploring and looking at three separate questions in our time together this morning that are really unraveled and unpacked in these verses, verses 6 through 20. The first question is this, who is speaking? We want to discover today as we come into the text who is actually speaking in the text that we're reading today. Second, what are the destructive habits that have embedded themselves in prideful nations? And perhaps we might ask, how have these habits embedded themselves in our world, in our culture, in our nation today? And then finally, where are you, Lord? How is the presence and position of the Lord contrasted to the presence and position of the idols that are being worshipped by a pride-filled nation. Finally, we're going to hear a testimony that is going to firmly relate to the place of the prophet in all of this, Habakkuk, who in our text this morning, as you're going to see, is going to be drawn towards a posture and a practice of silence in very difficult 
and unsettling circumstances. And we're going to hear testimony of a situation involving silence at the end uh, of our text today. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to turn them on to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Or if you're old-fashioned and want to open them up, you can open them up as well. Go to the book of Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to be reading uh, verses 6 through 20 today in the book of Habakkuk. Before we do, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it challenges us. Thank you for the way that it encourages us. Thank you that your spirit is alive and working through its reading and its studying, applying to each and every one of us exactly what we need in the moment we find ourselves living in today. Lord, this is a challenging text today. Uh, You draw our attention to a group of people that we uh, very rarely take time to hear from and see in your scriptures. And yet their words to us today are no less important. And so we turn to the text with open eyes, open minds, open hearts, ready to learn and hear. And we give you the glory for what you accomplished through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Starting in verse 6. Shall not all these... Take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him. And say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You've forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all of the earth keep silent before him. 
The first question that we must respond to and must address as we approach our text this morning is who is speaking in the text? Who has the voice here? And verse 6 reveals that to us. Shall not all these, these referring to the nations that had been oppressed or tyrannized by the Babylonians, shall not all of these nations take up their taunt against the Babylonians with scoffing and riddles for him? What we're reading today is written in a very similar fashion to the Proverbs that we'd read in the book of Proverbs in the Bible. These are the words of the nations who found themselves under the hand of Babylonian tyranny and oppression. These words in verses 6 through 20 are spoken from the position of the weak and the lowly. They are the ringing and corporate voice that's intent on undermining imperial forces and power structures. Though God has raised up the Babylonians, he is not overlooking, nor is he approving of their sin. There will be justice. And in the corporate voices of the Babylonian victims, we see and we hear the drumbeat of future justice. Friends, we sung this morning about a God who has not forgotten and one of the ways in Scripture that we see that God has not forgotten is that he gives voice to people who are facing and living under the hand of tyranny and impression. Words are powerful. And the content in verses 6b to 20 are powerful indictments against tyranny. These five woes are structured in a way to remind us that the tyrant's moment is fleeting. All of our lives, friends, are but a vapor. And for those who live under the hand of tyranny, there's great hope in knowing that their oppressor's reign cannot endure forever. Yahweh, the just and righteous sovereign king over all the earth, will always have the final word, his reign alone. Is eternal. The voices of all these nations, they are not confined to this one particular point in time. Rather, these voices ring with acuity throughout history. Tyranny can and still does manifest itself in many forms today. Biblical scholar George Adam Smith said this quote, Tyranny is intolerable. In the nature of things, it cannot endure, but works out its own penalties. By oppressing so many nations, people, and ethnic groups, the tyrant is preparing the instruments of his own destruction. As he treats them, so in the end shall they treat him. Tyranny is henceforth suicide. End quote. God presents these voices in this text today to undermine practices present within many empires throughout world history. Practices such as slavery, exploitation, the violent and unjust taking of occupied land, blatant disregard for human life and human dignity. And as we reflect on the collective voice of the oppressed nations today, 
It's important for us to remind ourselves of the truth that because of sin and the reality of sin, no nation is unstained by the sins of pride. There are many great nations throughout the world. We live in one of them. But there are no perfect nations. There are none without defect. There are none without distortion or blemish. There are none without difficulty, both in the present and in the past. All nations have current issues of injustice that must be identified, addressed, and rectified to the glory of God and the flourishing of his creations. All nations, all nations have past failures, pains, and tragedies that require open and honest remembrances and reflection, and perhaps in some circumstances, even confession and repentance, where there is still relationships that need to be reconciled and unresolved disputes and trauma that still pleads for justice. Rather than exploring a text like this with the spirit of self-righteousness, Lord, thank you that we are not like those people. That was the posture that was shared by the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the New Testament. It's far more productive for us to gather around texts like these and to plead with the Holy Spirit that he would reveal in our hearts, in our minds, in our own institutions and our own nations how we have or how we are currently practicing, perpetuating, and participating in the same or similar behaviors. Now, each of the patterns that we're going to look at today, or each of the woes, has a pattern that it kind of falls under. At least four of the five do. First, there will be the indictment or the woe, what has been done by the Babylonian people to these nations. Next will be an implication. How has it been perpetuated? And then finally, how will God use it or turn it against the Babylonians in the end? These are five destructive habits of a prideful nation. So we begin in verse 6b through 8 with the habit of greed. It's interesting that the uh, that the nations that had faced tyranny, they begin by pointing out the greed of the Babylonians. They say in verse 6b, Woe to the one who accumulates what does not belong to him. How long will this go on? He who gets rich by extortion. It was not at all uncommon then, nor has it been uncommon throughout history since, for one nation to forcefully overtake another solely for the purpose of financial or providential gain. When the situation is finally reversed, in the end, the, one, the ones who have been made into debtors by the Babylonians, they would awake, they would rise, and they would plunder the plunderers there will be an accounting for the greed of a prideful nation. Perhaps the Babylonians were cognizant of the potential of such a response from the nations that they had terrorized. Because we'll find in the second indictment that the empire actually used the wealth and the goods that they had accumulated to build for themselves beautiful walls, magnificent palaces and defense systems that would keep them from harm. 
And so if the first woe and the first indictment is on the greed of the Babylonians, then the second woe or the second indictment is on their desire to preserve themselves or preserve their nation. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. To do what? To set his nest on high. To be safe from the reach of harm. Verse 10. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You've forfeited your life. In fact, the NET translation says you will self-destruct. Now, in the ancient Near East, in the history of the ancient Near East, the nation of Babylon was seen as one of the most magnificent, beautiful, wealthy nations in all of the world. You see a few artistic depictions or renderings of what some of their buildings look like. Uh, there's an artistic rendering in the top picture. In the bottom are uh, stone tablets that have carved into it this life of luxury that was enjoyed by them. And you can see on the map how expansive their empire was. For worship, one of their temples that they built was known as a ziggurat. And, and in fact, these things were absolutely massive. Think of the pyramids that you see in the country Egypt. And isn't it interesting in the text how the very goods and the very materials and the very wealth that the Babylonians had plundered from other nations would one day play a part in their own demise as a nation. The very materials that had been stolen to construct their massive walls and buildings and places of worship would cry out against them. Look at verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. And we are reminded, church, we're reminded, friends, that we are rarely satisfied by the accumulation of material possessions. We never find ultimate joy and comfort in taking things that do not belong to us. And one day, those things that we've taken that are not ours might possibly be the very things that indict us for our greed. We might possibly grow to despise that which we thought would make us comfortable and secure. The greed and the self-preservation of the Babylonian Empire came at the great expense of many innocent lives. In their time, not only was the wealth of the Babylonians unrivaled, no other nation looked like they did in terms of prosperity. But on top of their wealth, the other reality of their nation that was unrivaled was their propensity for violence. The Babylonians were a violent, violent people. And it is this very violence that the nations who were overtaken by them by would now turn their attention to. Look at verses 12 and 13. I'm reading from the NET translation here. Woe to the one who builds a city by bloodshed. He who starts a town by unjust deeds. Be sure of this. 
The Lord of heaven's armies has decreed. The nation's efforts will go up in smoke. Their exhausting work will be for nothing. Verse 13 represents the center of this proverb in verses 6 through 20. And uh, we see that the nations are now going to identify and speak of the Lord's decree against violence. Similar sentiments like this were echoed by Habakkuk's contemporary, Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 51, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Babylon's thick wall will be completely demolished. Her high gates will be set on fire. The people strive for what does not satisfy. The nations grow weary trying to get what will be destroyed. Instead of blood, violence, and the glory of Babylon, the earth would be filled with something very much different than those things. Look at verse 14. Not blood, not violence, not Babylon's glory. The earth may temporarily have those things as part of it, but what does verse 14 ultimately point our attention towards? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, Babylon would eventually be overwhelmed by the same violence and by the same bloodshed that they perpetuated against others. Their glory would fade as an empire. They would be overthrown in 539 BC. There were two other nations uh, known as the Medes and the per Persians. That would overtake them and their empire would come to an end. And in our world today, the attitudes, the habits and the behaviors that follow the patterns of the Babylonian empire will also face their bitter end. When Jesus Christ returns to the earth in order to fully establish his millennial reign. That's the truth. One day we will live in a world. And again, we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, but I don't know if we fully can wrap our minds around it because violence, suffering, oppression, tyranny, all of these things, bloodshed, war, they're such a part of our vocabulary that it's hard for us to consider that one day we will live in a world where none of those things need to exist in our vocabulary. None of those things. Jesus Christ will return. The millennial kingdom will be here. He will reign. He will reign. It's not just greed. It's not just self-preservation. It's not just violence that the nations bring to indict the Babylonians. But there's also exploitation. This is the fourth woe in our text. Look at verse 15. Woe to you who force your neighbor to drink wine. You who make others intoxicated by forcing them to drink from the bowl of your furious anger so you can look at their naked bodies. Exploitation or its close relative manipulation are important allies for the preservation and protection of one's perceived self-built empire. Remember, this was the indictment on the Babylonians. They relied on their own strength. Their own efforts were their God. They were their own God. And if, if they could just 
force someone to do something that was advantageous for them, while simultaneously being disadvantageous to those they were oppressing, then they could keep themselves in positions of privilege and power. Friends, this is not a good place to be where the Babylonians are. This is not where we want to be. God is raising them up, absolutely. But the ways that they are doing what they are doing, he does not approve of, he does not condone, he does not receive glory in, it does not please him for them to behave in this fashion. When we glory in the shame of others while basking in our own power, rather than seeking the good and flourishing of all humanity, we pride ourselves in the protection and preservation of empires that we believe we've built with our own hands. The products of exploitation are identified in our text. They're seen as wine or drunkenness that lead to shame and nakedness. And there is a contrast between shame and glory that exists throughout the scriptures. And from very early in the Bible, drunkenness, shame, and nakedness are connected concepts. When is the first time that you can remember these three concepts being connected in the scriptures? It's in the book of Genesis. Anybody remember? Very first time that we see these three words together. Noah. Noah. Right? We think all is well. The earth has been flooded. Those who survived are off the ark. It's all going to be good. It's all going to be new. A fresh start. A new start. A new beginning. They start to do exactly what they were called to do. To plant. To continue on in what God's called them. They put a vine vineyard up. Noah begins to take of the vineyard. He takes a little too much. He gets drunk. He goes into his tent. He's naked. His son Ham walks in, sees it, doesn't do anything about it. The text implies that there's some kind of immoral thing that happens. We don't know what when Ham walks into the tent and does nothing to cover his father's nakedness. You remember how it's resolved? The other two brothers, what do they do? They take a blanket they walk, how do they walk into the tent? Do you remember? Backwards. To cover their father. To cover what the Bible describes as his nakedness and his shame. You see, the Babylonians think that by making other nations small and keeping other nations small, by shaming them, exposing their nakedness, their vulnerabilities, that the Babylonians will be in a position to receive more power and glory. But look at what it says in verse 16. But you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. Through greed, self-preservation, violence, and exploitation, the Babylonians demonstrated that they were relying on their own strength, their own efforts, their own pride, their own power, and their own prestige to build their empire. 
In their minds, they had built an empire for themselves, by themselves, centered solely on the preservation and protection of their own people through their dominance over and suppression and subjugation of their neighboring nations. It was not just self-preservation that motivated them or self-worship. The Babylonians had a complex religious system as well. It's one that involved the making and the worshiping of idols. And in the final woe that the persecuted nation turned their collective voice to address, we see the issue of idolatry. Look again at verses 18 and 19. What good is an idol? Why would a craftsman make it? What good is a metal image that gives misleading oracles? Why would its creator place his trust in it and make such mute, worthless things? Woe to the one who says to wood, wake up. He who says to a speechless stone, awake. And friends, Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we think that the worship of idols was something that was confined to ancient Near Eastern history. But idolatry is still alive and well today. And idolatry always plays a part in the subjugation and oppression of other people. The Babylonians would build their expansive ziggurats with massive stones. They would build buildings covered in precious jewel and stone. And within these buildings, within these ziggurats and temples, they would bring their carved idols, names like Marduk, Tiamat, Nebu, Utu, Enlil, and Anki. And they would put them in the temples that they made with human hands. And there they would sacrifice to the idols, and believed that a lifeless statue made by their own hands could somehow bring them blessing. Church, idols always lie to us. They tell us that they have the answers and can fix our problems. They command our trust. If we would only listen to them, do more, pray more, sacrifice more, watch longer, Subscribe to their channel or newspaper or even follow them on Twitter. Then they could help us. But idols represent and reflect to us our own pride and insecurity. But as God's word says, they're not able to teach and they are not life-giving. Ultimately, friends, what we find with idols is that they suck the life out of us As we grow more anxious, more fearful, sadder, or angrier in the world that God has planted us in to shine the light of Jesus and demonstrate his love to all he directs into our pathways. Where are you, Lord? All of this is going on. Where are you? And before we get to the answer in our text, there's an interesting passage in Acts that relates very well. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 48. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool for my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is my resting place? Did my hand not make all these things? You stubborn people, 
with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit like your ancestors did. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold long ago the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law by decrees given by angels, but you did not obey it. Do you know who spoke those words? Anybody remember who spoke those words in the book of Acts? It's a man named Stephen. And you want to know what happened in the very next scene after he spoke those words? He was stoned to death. Friends, these are not comfortable words. These are not happy words. Habakkuk's book, in many ways, is a challenging book because these realities still exist in our world today. We are not free from them. We do not live free from them. We're saved by the power of Jesus. Give him glory. Give him the honor. And yes, as the text says in verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. But isn't it interesting that though he says that, and though that's true, he sent his own son Jesus into the world. And what behaviors came upon our Lord? Did he experience greed? Yes. Did he experience a religious system that was bent on their own self-preservation? Absolutely. Did he experience violence? No doubt. Was he exploited? Yes. And was there idolatry? Certainly the people were worshiping Caesar as Lord and not Jesus as Lord. You see, we serve a God who's able to relate to us in these places, who has not forgotten us, who gives those of us who face these difficulties a voice because he himself endured them. He took our sin. He took our shame. He took each of these difficult, prideful behaviors to the cross. And he died the death that we deserve. Now, the response here is that we are to keep silent before the Lord. But we recognize this is a very difficult situation when we're faced with difficult times in our lives. And I want us to hear testimony today from one of our own staff who had a very difficult experience in serving as a missionary on the field where she had to learn the value of keeping silent before the Lord while she was serving. Susan, come and share, please. This happened in the winter and spring of 1984. I was a missionary in Austria. Um, our ministry was to Eastern Europe, to um, um, Hungary, Romania, the former Yugoslavia, the former um, Czechoslovakia. But we lived in Austria and traveled. I worked with a British mission, um, and our permanent staff were two families, each with two children and me. <laughs> and during this period, there was a very grievous time on our team. Um, these missionaries were at war with each other, the two families. 
Um, it eventually left, uh, led to the divorce of one of the families and um, the dissolving of the ministry entirely. I found the sin and inexplicable injustice, anger, and distrust really shook my foundation of, of what I believed um, God could do or who he was. I was overwhelmed by the senseless sin I saw in people that I had once respected. I found myself yelling at God every day and telling him just what he needed to do to make things right. We had a wonderful testimony in our, this little Austrian village um, of the only Protestant people in the village. People trusted us and admired us. We, there were people in Eastern Europe who told us they could not have survived the tribulation they were under, undergoing under communism without knowing that we were coming and helping them. And all this was falling apart. I attended a conference in England, and the entire conference was teaching Habakkuk, or in Britain they call it, um, Hab yeah, we call it Habakkuk, <laughs> Habakkuk is what they say in England. Um, and it may seem a little melodramatic, but as I heard those, these um, verses read and taught, I identified what, with, with the, um, what was happening to Israel. I felt like I was living in that same circumstance. And um, but God used that in my heart, especially when we got to Habakkuk 2.20, and it stopped me short. The Lord would not allow me to forget those words. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all who stand before me be silent. Through these words, as I, I lived across the street in an apartment looking on the mission house, and I would get up every morning and rail against God, surely he would hear. He brought these words to my mind. I'm in the temple. Be silent. So he got, called me into a period of silence. I devoted six weeks and promised him I would ask him nothing, but I would spend precious time with him. I would get up in the morning for my regular quiet time and just meditated on scripture, mostly his attributes. He is faithful, he's loving, he's kind, he's just, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. It was as though he took me up above the pain of my circumstances and gave me his view through his eyes, and I just worshiped him in silence. I've since gone back to pra practicing the discipline of silence at specific times when he calls me into it, and they're usually times of fear, fearful times that, again, I'm tempted to tell him exactly what he should be doing to right the circumstances, such as when Tom was diagnosed with cancer in 1995. But even when he's, his call is not there, there's still this voice from this, from this very verse. When I get a little bossy with him, I can hear him say, I, I, maybe none of you are like that, but I get bossy in my prayers, and he says, I am in my temple, be silent. Thank you, Susan. You may have noticed in this series, uh, 
I've avoided making very specific remarks about how these things may apply in our culture and our world today. And I've done that uh, because I honestly believe that we need to inspect our own hearts and our own minds in the places that we sit and consider how these things might be perpetuated uh, in the places that we live, work, and have our being today. But ultimately, in the end, we may not have answers. We may not see resolution. Entire nations of people, entire generations of people have lived and died under the hand of tyranny and oppression. Uh, and, and that is sad and that's hard to fathom, but it's a reality. And when we don't have answers to the questions, the book of Habakkuk gives us some good postures. One of them was waiting. A few weeks ago, he talked about waiting on the Lord. Another of those postures is silence, being quiet before the Lord and trusting that he is who he says he is and he will do what he has set out to do. He will accomplish and fulfill his purposes perfectly. And we need to trust those things. Today we're moving into a time of communion and we're going to do communion a little bit differently. I've had time to work ahead with Scott on this. Uh, We are not going to have any music during communion today, we are going to do uh, what I've referred to as a silent communion. And we are going to practice the habit and the posture of sitting, going before the Lord in silence. We'll have some prayer. Uh, we'll have some words that are spoken. But in the time between, we will practice silence uh, during our sharing of communion. So elders, as you make your way to the back, uh, if you could come forward We'll prepare to receive the communion before we do. Let's pray. Father, we look at these words today and they are hard words. They're difficult words. They're revealing words. Lord, they expose to us uh, ways that we've seen some of these similar habits and behaviors work themselves out uh, throughout history. And it's hard. It's difficult. We're challenged, Lord. But we also recognize that That kind of conviction comes from the Spirit when we study your word. And Lord, our prayer is that you would be glorified and honored by our response and by our postures as people who live in the midst of some of these difficult things. Lord, we know you've given us a better way. You've sent your son Jesus, that you've indwelled us with his Holy Spirit, and you've called us to live in this darkness as salt and light. We cannot do that without your strength. You have to be living and moving inside of us. We can't drum it up on our own efforts. We need your love and compassion, your gentleness and kindness, your patience. Lord, your steadfastness. We need all of those things. We turn our attention today to a time of communion where we will remember, reflect and proclaim the truths of your son, Jesus, that he came, that he endured many of these same Things, Lord, all of these same things that the nations that the Babylonians were oppressing had endured. And yet, Lord, he was faithful, faithful to the end, perfectly completing the work you gave him to do. His life, Lord, is a testimony and encouragement an example for us as Philippians 2 challenges us. We are to have the same mind and same attitude as Jesus who faced these very things yet lived perfectly before you. So, Lord, as we remember and proclaim the death and burial of your son, Jesus, today, 
We pray that in silence, you would pique our hearts and minds to be thankful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Lord was dining in the upper room with his disciples. It was just a few hours before all the trials leading to his crucifixion would begin. He took bread and he broke it and he says, this is my body which has been broken for you as often as you take uh, do so in remembrance of me. Elders, would you pass the bread this morning? Amen. In a similar manner that he took the bread, he also took the cup with wine, and he said, this cup represents a new covenant which has been poured out for you in my blood as often as you drink. Do so in remembrance of me. Elders, would you please pass the cup? The cup represents the blood of Christ poured out for you. Take and drink. Lord, you are good and you are gracious to us. You keep us. You motivate endurance within us. You give us the strength to love, to stand, to show compassion, to be joyful, to be hopeful, even in affliction and pain and tribulation. Your son Jesus reminded us that in this world, we will have troubles. But then he followed that up by reminding us that he has overcome the world. And as we participate in communion today, we recognize that part of the way that he has overcome the world is through the laying down of his own life, the giving up of his own rights, the sacrifice of his own blood. So we are thankful, and we give you the glory, and thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.